for real stories on how global business gets done. This is Supply Chain Unfiltered, presented by the Institute for Supply Management. So glad you decided to join us today for another episode of Supply Chain Unfiltered. I'm Melanie Stern for ISM. And we thought uh, focus for today uh, is information. And yeah, very broad topic, of course. But it isn't just about information in and of itself, but how we view information, how we search for information, how we value information, and specifically related to how information can impact our decision-making. Very important related to supply management. And I'm going to... I'm not going to say I'm going to poke fun, but I'm going to kind of call out a behavior we're all guilty of right here. Um, our phone or, oh, sorry, you see my grandson. But our, our phone, um, any smart device, we do a quick search and think we can find the information we need to make uh, decisions, life decisions. But what I'm going to call into question, though, is are we able to take that behavior and kind of put a hard stop on that just for our personal life? Or is it impacting how we make decisions in our business dealings? Uh, I came across some research uh, from uh, research findings from the Pew Research Center where they're showing that there is a drastic decline in U.S. adults and where they gather their news. Um, definitely declining from using uh, traditional radio and the news, the television news broadcast that many of us uh, grew up with and uh, relied on for uh, factual information. Uh, now, half of U.S. adults are deferring to social media for their news, and 14% of them are relying on TikTok for their news. That's, um, that's something to consider going forward, as well as if you look at uh, leadership today, as well as professionals that are going to age into leadership roles, if they continue to use their phones to gather the information they seek to make decisions, is that behavior going to migrate into uh, how they formulate business decisions and what will those be and how will they impact across the profession. And that leads me to share our guest today, Executive Director of CAPS Research, Dennis Wolowicki. Thank you, Melody. So happy you decided to come here in the studio. I love having company. <laughs> oh, it's great to be here. And it's so nice that it's local for both of us. Exactly. So so all those things that I mentioned, you know, that are causing me, I'll say a little bit of concern, right? Um, do you think that society has changed in their perceived value of knowledge-based data? Oh, absolutely. I think you use the word you're concerned. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, I'm horrified. Uh, okay. I, I think it's a great concern and, and, and beyond a concern that the, the patterns of information gathering and information usage have changed. Um, and you say, well, it's natural. It's an evolution of new sources. But the way it's being used and, and I think more importantly, the way people will focus on just a few sources and not diversify their look at information, not take in a broader view. 
But why do you, why do you think that is, though? Speed, agility. Um, I think uh, you know the hectic pace of the world. I think. Well, several things. I think it's readily available, right? As you said, you held up your mobile device, whether it's a phone or an iPad or whatever. It's just so easy to access. Um, it's so there's such a wealth of it out there, and I don't mean wealth and value necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean wealth and quantity of information out there, and uh, so it's fast, it's easy, and people are busy, right? The, the the pace of life has just gotten so dramatically faster, so you're taking everything in these little sound bites, and I think it's so important to just step back and think about what you're taking in sometimes. And do you think that there's a shift in, uh, I'll say, how people prioritize the information? Do they, do you think they'd they don't really care for or find truth or fact as sexy as, you know, the other? I, I'm going to state my opinions here. And there I'll you state, go. That's I'll okay. I'll state it more broadly, um, and I know we're going to hone in here yeah. on, on more supply chain aspects. But more generally, um, I, I think that uh, people do take uh, – are not taking enough time to think about the sources. I think when it's in front of you and it's written, you know, whether it's on a screen or not, it's printed or it's written, it looks so authoritative. And, you know, I can just cite, and we don't have the time to do it, but I could cite a number of examples where I've, I've just raised an eyebrow on something. <laughs> when I'm researching something for our business, I raise an eyebrow. I said, is that right? Is that number right? Or they make a statement or they make, they position this a certain way. Is that the right viewpoint to look at this? And I, and then I go start to look for other things, other sources, other, other parts of the information, and you realize there's a much broader picture. What you initially saw portrayed on that screen was one small piece from one angle, and there's such a broader view to the whole thing. Right, and making truth so hard to come by right. these days. Um, so, so you, you started off um, that commentary with, you know, your opinion, right? And opinion matters. Mm -hmm. So when business professionals are looking to, uh, looking to unbiased and um, science-based or research-based information um, and how to apply that best to their business dealings, there are the, they take the information and then engage in conversations that will round up opinion. So... How, how, how would one, you know, come up with, you know, I, I don't know, a measurement of how much do we weigh on, you know, the research versus when does opinion come in or does, should it come in at all? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. And we can't discount opinion. We can't discount what I often call gut feeling. Yeah. I value that. And, in fact, I'll, I'll cite a reference, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. Mm. is really a great book, and I recommend that people read it. And it talks about you know gut feelings and gut judgments and the fact that more often than not they're right, they're directionally correct. Um, your viewpoint, uh, your, your experience, your knowledge, your education, all of those things go into a very complex way of processing you have buried deep within you, your brain and, and all of your senses. And what you often initially sense is directionally accurate but it's so important to go beyond that and say okay this seems like the right decision to me but why you know do i have my facts correct um even if it's the right decision what are all the ramifications of that what's the cost going to be what's the time timeline going to be 
around that decision. You know, do, is there a better way to balance this, even if I'm heading in a general direction? Um, so it's important to put more richness to that initial gut reaction. So short answer to your question, should you use, you know, facts and knowledge or should you use opinion? I think it's all the above. And you think in our haste for finding answers, perhaps we don't question things enough? I think not, yeah. In my opinion, again, this is my opinion. <laughs> what I see others do and what, what concerns me is um, it's, it's a quick jump reaction. Um, you know, some joke about, you know, chasing the shiny ball. Uh, mm -hmm. Others will say, I'm too busy. You know, just give me, give me the executive summary. Give me the one sentence. Exactly. Uh, I'm, too, I'm too busy. Um, but, you know, I, just, I, I think that can lead down a path where it's short-sighted uh, in many cases. And so you also have to think about, and this is an important aspect, if you're taking in just one or a few sources, you got to stop and think, what's the agenda behind that source? And we don't have to go political here. You know, we don't have to get into controversial viewpoints, whether you're right or left. I mean, it can be business. It can be, it can be a business decision. It can be um, a financial decision. It can be any of those things. What's the agenda behind the information source you see? For instance, if you're seeing some research data around software adoption and around value of uh, automating your process, it, is that information being put out by a software company that has a solution to sell you? I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying that they're nefarious with what they're doing, but they've got an agenda around the information they're presenting. Is that the complete story? Are there other nuances to that decision? You really owe it to yourself to take a deeper dive. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so I, I, I'd like to hear more, and I know um, our audience would like to know more about how did you come to CAPS Research? I know it's, 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 mm -hmm. it's relatively new to you, I guess, the last couple years. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a long journey, a little bit of serendipity, but I feel like I'm in the right place. Um, so briefly, and I'll try to keep it brief, I've had a long journey in, in my career. I started out in engineering okay. and uh, really uh, had an intent to go design products and started out in aerospace for the excitement of designing and building new things. And I really enjoyed engineering and I enjoyed design engineering. I found myself more and more getting into project management and then program management around major development programs and by, by the consequence of that, I was dealing with some very important suppliers and working on supply management issues for materials and products coming into the process. And almost by default was tripping my way into supply chain, although nobody called it that back then. Um, I went back to grad school. I was trying to finish grad school, and there, was, there, there were a couple little twists and turns as I, as I completed my grad school education and tried to balance work. And more or less coming out of grad school, I found myself um, in a different industrial role that was kind of financial and program management based, more financial than engineering, and uh, was looking at cost around programs and payback and ROI and whether product development programs were worth it. And, mm -hmm. um, and that was another interesting dimension. And at that point, again, pure serendipity, I got recruited into consulting. I got a phone call one day from a recruiter who thought I might be a software engineer because of where I appeared on the company 
It was obvious he had the company directory in his hands. <laughs> and I was not. Uh, I told him what I did, and he said, oh, I, that's interesting. I might have something different to talk to you about. Wow. He called me a few days later. Next thing I knew, I had an interview with a major consulting, global consulting company, and that started me in supply chain consulting. And so that was a, a great ride. I spent a number of years, first with one major consulting group, then with another major consulting group for a number of years, but then got the yearn to go back to industry. I was traveling 100%. I was never home. My kids were growing up. Um, it was hard. The travel life was hard. Um, I was at a decision point whether I stayed with it and kind of went partner track or whether I went and did something else. So I jumped back to corporate America, and I jumped back into supply chain jobs at a variety of companies. And, you know, I think the combination of my engineering background and my um, – my, my corporate experiences and my consulting experiences provided such a rich mix to go back into supply chain as a leader and look at what needed to be done to improve and transform these companies. I was very well grounded for that, I felt. And I did that work for a number of years, thoroughly enjoyed it. Then I got a call. Out of the blue, I got a call from uh, somebody on the CAPS research board saying, we're looking for a new executive managing director. Are you interested? And it was 20 minutes from my home right here. And I said, I would love to talk about that. So here I am. Great, great. Uh, and CAPS provides such a wealth of information. Mm -hmm. um, not readily accessible for, I mean, you know, there, we tend to find value in things when we place a high value on them. And so with a membership, you have access to this mm -hmm. high level information. Um, that can definitely impact business. For anyone that's considering a membership that doesn't have one, or, or a member that's not really taking advantage of what's available to them, once they start engaging with what's available, what, what would you foresee as the first um, difference or benefit that they they may experience just by utilizing what you we provide. Well, I'll tell you what, what I did. This is how I learned about CAPS many years ago. So I, even though I've been here for two years leading it, I've known about and used CAPS data for over 20 years. I was trying to figure out exactly when it started. I think it's over 20 years. Wow. Um, so I knew about CAPS because of the affiliation with Arizona State University and with ISM. And that's how I became aware of it way back when. And realized that they had important materials around the state of the art of the practice. And so I would be in these companies driving these transformational programs of how to build a new team, how to create a better level of excellence within the company. And I would go and I would reference CAPS information that I could access online, uh, including the benchmarks. And I have found them to be incredibly useful over the years at many different companies. And some of the, the war stories I can share is where I actually applied CAPS benchmarks to the analysis of what was going on inside the company and presented it to people in the C-suite and said, here's what the industry is doing. Here's what your peers in this industrial sector are doing. Here's what you're doing. Here's the gap. Here's the difference. And inevitably, their eyes would pop open. And they'd say, where did you get that data? I said, well, CAPS research. This is data from the industry. Um, so it's been incredibly useful. Okay, so I'm not I'm not going to let you off off the hook there. Okay. So I so you're you're in that boardroom. You're in mm -hmm. that conference room 
with the C-suite and you're telling them information that they didn't expect and maybe it was good, maybe it was eye-opening to them in not such a glorious way. Right. Right. Maybe it didn't, they, and maybe their ego stepped in and like, oh, you know, now I look like a, right? Like I, I was totally off base here. So how do you, how do you broach those, com- those parts of the conversation? Um, how do you temper the situation when, you know, I mean, it, it well, could I be wouldn't a little call precarious. It, yeah, it, it could be precarious. I mean, it, you never want to ambush, right? It's, <laughs> it's never meant to be an ambush. Right. Yeah, you don't want to confront somebody in an awkward way. So it was always a buildup to the, to the findings and to the information. You, you kind of lay the groundwork. You point out that something seems to be a gap. You do the analytics. You bring the information. You, you, you bring people into the discussion, but um, you don't want to blindside them. Um, but I would say it was, it was shocking and eye-opening so many times, not because something was being done so wrong or, or, or um, where people were embarrassed that they had done something incorrectly, just that they didn't know. It was more ignorance. And I, numerous examples, but one easy one is around the size and structure of a team. Um, a CFO just not understanding why he wasn't getting more savings productivity out of his purchasing group, and he called it the purchasing group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why is this? Why am I having so much trouble controlling my costs? And when we went in and we looked, and I evaluated what they had, they had too small of a team that was too underskilled with less experience and and less uh, data analytic and um, competent people around critical skills like category management and negotiation. They're basically buyers, and I'm not insulting buyers, but they were just at a career level that was not senior enough to manage some of the major issues in the suppliers this company had. Too small of a team, too underskilled, and too fragmented across the organization. They had people peppered across a few different operating locations. So there was no central command. There was no coordination around what was happening. I pointed out the better way to do it and what the benchmark showed, which was a team that was of a certain size and a certain structure with a certain competency, and and here's what your peers in industry are doing. And the CFO was just shocked. He said, no one's ever shown me this before. He's one of those people Mm -hmm. that said, where did you get this data? How do I know this is right? Um, And I said, well, it's because it's CAPS research, and and here's the data from the industry. I... I couldn't even imagine how impactful that would be, you know, kind of all along, all along a supply chain. And for anyone that's kind of, let's say, ambivalent about it, um, are there misconceptions maybe that that go along with that? Let's say there's a manufacturer that's just just now beginning to be more open to research and then applying those findings into mm-hmm. into how they do business. Um, have have you run across like a common misconception about mm-hmm. leaders? What, what, what would that be? Well, there's a couple that come to mind when you say that as misconceptions. One would be that the information doesn't apply to us. Oh. We're unique. It's the, it's the we're unique situation. You hear that a lot. And, you know, and I understand that. I understand the viewpoint. Oh, how do you know this number's right? Because we're different or because we operate this way or because we have um, a wide variety of manufacturing footprint in our business. Whatever it is, we're unique. 
Mm, they're really not. <laughs> they're really <laughs> Everyone not. Everyone wants to be special. I've Come been on. enough places and I've seen enough things. I can trust myself in my career that I've been inside the four walls of a lot of companies, including a lot of Fortune 500 companies. And at, at a fundamental level around some of these basic operating parameters, you're comparable with others. And if you are, if you do have unique things about your structure or your products in your business, that can be adjusted for. That can be evaluated. But at, at the core level, you're not unique. I think the other misconception that I see happening is people wanting to take one or two measurements and run with it. How many people should I have? Tell me the headcount. Or, um, you know, what's the right number of suppliers in my portfolio? Give me, give me a, a number. No, it doesn't work that way. There's, there's a range of metrics and parameters because, again, recognizing that companies are different, and, and I'm respecting that fact, you have to look at the benchmarks and the metrics as a portfolio of things that kind of define an envelope of where you should be, not a point solution. You shouldn't be here. You should be within this envelope. This is a better way to think about it. And that means looking at your business from five, six, ten different perspectives around your spend, your people, your performance, et cetera. Is that, do you think that comes from kind of a mindset that we want, we want definitive answers? You know, we want. That's, that's a good question. Um, there are some people that are absolute, especially engineers, and yes, I can say that exactly. because I'm an engineer. <laughs> the absolute answer, they want the precise, the precision. Um, there are others that are more willing to go with the general estimate. I think maybe some of that too, it's the busy world. We talked about that earlier yeah. and it's the, maybe that executive mindset of just, just give me, give me the five sentences. Don't, don't give me the PowerPoint presentation, just five sentences maximum. Tell me what the answer they is. They want, they want the bullets. They don't want the story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I get it. Um, and as you know, I work as a journalist for ISM. And so part of my work involves extensive amounts of uh, research um, and looking at the sources and verifying sources. And one thing I've come across in the last few months is one particular word that's being echoed across the profession, and it's it's this quest for uh, realizing resiliency, especially going into this next year. And for companies that want that very much for all the obvious mm -hmm. reasons, is is implementing um, research into their practices a, a good way to help them get there? I think so. Yeah, for sure. And do I say that with some vested interests? Of course I do. But I really believe it's the right answer. Um, and I don't believe it's a quick and easy answer. So talking about resiliency, let's use that example. Resiliency, and I'll, I'll put it in the context of supplier risk mapping and understanding your supplier network, Okay. That's a big, big way to address resiliency is understanding where your risk points are in your network. We're seeing, and we have the data, we have the benchmarks, we have the research that shows companies are really struggling with this. Only about 30% of companies out there that we've identified have truly done any sort of resiliency work, and they have not done it very deeply. It does not go broadly into their supply mm. base. So you say, well, what's the right way to attack it? And, and the common complaint we hear is that um, it's just so vast. The problem is so large. It's so overwhelming, and I don't have people. I don't have resources to go attack this. Um, it's another area, area where I think I see people jump to a quick solution. They want to go buy a third-party 
set yeah. of information or a service. Tell me where my risk is. I'm going to go subscribe to the service. Tell me where my risk is. All of these things are partial answers. They're not complete answers. And But I think it goes back to fundamentals. And I want to just dial it back to the fundamentals of good spend analytics and understanding your spend, your category structure, your supply base, who are your largest suppliers, and it isn't always where you need to focus. Not It's not just the largest. Where are your most critical supply points in that whole set of spend that you've identified? Um, where are the potential risk points from a variety of factors, maybe geographic risk, geopolitical risk? Let's say you've got suppliers in the interior of China. It's logistically challenging, and there's a lot of geopolitical attention on China. So where are all these suppliers in your portfolio? Start to focus there. And you can't do that until you've got a good, solid grasp on your fundamental data. And for anyone that is just ready to get started, <laughs> what's the best way to connect with CAPS Research? Uh, go to our website, please. You can very quickly access us through the website. Um, there is a, a click and, uh, point and click where you can ask to register for a complimentary uh, membership. Now, it will not give you access to all our data because a lot of it is members only, but it will give you access to interesting data so you can start to get a feel for what we do. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for being here. Dennis Wolowicki of CAPS Research. Uh, you can get a lot more of that as well as other content that you will find valuable and help you roll your business along in the area that best suits you. You can find it at ismworld.org. It's also where you can get information on our 2024 conference. You do not want to miss it. It's a great way to network, um, set up new strategic uh, relationships, and reconnect with old friends, and find out what's new, where you want to be, and uh, what you want to avoid in the coming year. I'm Melanie Stern for ISM and another episode of Supply Chain Unfiltered.